Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 52 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Our big question of the day, why did God seek to kill Moses right after he sent him on a rescue mission for the children of Israel? Everybody rejoice. It's Friday, and if you live in sunny central California, you get to enjoy temperatures in the mid-70s today with sunshine and no humidity. And if you're in the area, Salinas, Monterey, Seaside, Pacific Grove, come visit us at Valley Baptist Church in Salinas. We're at 320 Church Street, right across the street from the Steinbeck Library. We meet on Sundays at 1030 and Wednesdays at 630, and boy, would we love to have you. I want to invite you also, while I'm uh, promoting, to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, and to share the show on social media and give us some reviews and all that kind of good stuff. Now, if you're not in the sunny central California area, I do need to apologize for bragging on our weather. Um, Yours probably isn't as nice. My friends in Birmingham this week are facing temperatures in the 20s and uh, Noah-like floods, and I I feel bad for you guys in Alabama. I'm sorry. After about uh, one and a half years as a native Californian, I've learned that the four most California things possible are, number one, mentioning how great the weather is, and hey, it's pretty good. Number two, eating avocados, which are amazing. Number three, skateboarding. There's a lot of skateboarding around here. Number four, buying bags at the daggum grocery store because I am literally incapable of remembering to get them out of my trunk and bring them into the store. And my defense, it's been 40-something years. I lived in another state where you didn't do that. Bags were free. They were plastic. I know that's not the best for the environment, but old habits die hard. Well, anyway, enough nonsense. Today's Bible passages include Job 21, where we see Job at his Best, I guess you could say, a man of sorrows that maintains an excellent sense of dark sarcasm in answering his mean old friends. For instance, Job 21, verse 2 and 3, he says, Pay close attention to my words. Let this be the consolation you offer. Bear with me while I speak. Then after I have spoken, you may continue mocking. Hmm. In Luke chapter 7, we see the remarkable example of the Roman centurion's faith, and we also see Jesus' compassion and power on full display as he resurrects the only son of the widow of Nain. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is focused on eating food sacrificed to idols, which on the surface is not a big deal in much of the West, but it also discusses how not to be a stumbling block to people when we use our biblical liberty to eat and drink. It also contains this wonderfully powerful nugget of wisdom, knowledge puffs up, in other words, makes you arrogant, love builds up. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Our focus passage remains in Exodus today, and our Bible question concerns what honestly might be one of the most mysterious and absolutely unexplained events in the entire Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Exodus 4, and I want you to be on the lookout, or the listen out, that's not really a word, I want you to be listening for the mysterious happening. And as you listen, notice how 
how there's not a pretext or a postscript that explains our event in question. It just happens, and we're given no explanation for it. Here we go. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground. It became a snake, and he, he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, Stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak to him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Then Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still living. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now in Midian the Lord told Moses, Return to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took God's staff in his hand. The Lord instructed Moses, When you go back to Egypt, make sure you do before Pharaoh all the wonders that I have put within your power. But I will harden his heart so that he won't let the people go. And you will say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go. Look, I am about to kill your firstborn son. On the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. 
So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet, and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time she said, You are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. Now the Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they bowed low and worshipped. <laughs> so, I didn't mean to laugh in the reading of the word. That's a little obnoxious. But that picture of Moses throwing his staff on the ground and it becoming a snake and him running away from it is always hilarious to me. I would love to have seen that. It almost sounds as the kind of thing you'd see on TV. It's so funny. Well, back to the main topic. Did you, did you catch it there? Did you catch it there at the end of Exodus 4? Almost immediately after God, God had called and pushed Moses into leading the Exodus out of Egypt, God goes to Moses to kill him. Yeah, I said kill him because that's exactly what the Bible says. What in the world is going on here? Just in case you missed it, let's read it one more time. Uh, Exodus 4, 24 through 26, on the trip at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. There it is right there. So Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So many questions. I guess the most important question is, why does God seek to kill Moses? But there's some other questions too. How was God going to kill him? Why did Moses' wife circumcise her son and throw the uh, tip at the feet of Moses? Why did that appease God? And finally, what in the world did she mean by, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me? Wow. So let me begin our answers today with a very strong caution. I think we can offer an extremely plausible explanation, believe it or not, for much of what is happening here. And I think we can offer an explanation that is actually pretty sound biblically. However, our explanation in this situation and in a lot of these situations will at best be conjecture. And to refresh you, a conjecture is like an opinion or a conclusion that comes from missing or incomplete information. I think biblical conjecture is okay as long as we say right up front that we are speculating, making educated guesses at best. I think it's a little dangerous to just definitively say what's you think is happening in the text when the text doesn't tell us that there's some danger there. I think we're going to have a right answer given to us today. But just as long as you and I know that this is speculation, I think that puts us on safe ground. Putting all of the pieces of the puzzle together here, it would appear that God was going to bring the most severe discipline possible to Moses because Moses was 
willingly refusing to obey God's commands and have his son circumcised. So let's tag in our good friend, uh, our French friend, John Calvin, for a good speculation conjecture answer about what is going on here. And this is what Mr. Calvin says. The expression, the Lord met him, is here used in a bad sense for an adverse meeting or a hostile encounter, as though Moses should say that the hand of the Lord was against him to interrupt his journey. In what form God appeared, we don't know, except that the words pretty plainly imply that Moses was assured of his anger so as to be aware that his death was near. The cause is not directly expressed for which he perceived that God was so angry with him, except that we may gather it from what follows. For why would Zipporah have taken a sharp stone or knife and circumcised her son had she not known that God was offended at his uncircumcision? It is sufficient for us to know that he was terrified by the approach of certain destruction, and that at the same time the cause of his affliction was shown to him, so that Moses hastened to seek for a remedy. It would have not occurred to himself or his wife to circumcise the child to appease God's wrath otherwise, and it will appear a little later further on in the text that God's anger was satisfied by this offering, since he withdrew drew his hand, and took away the signs of his wrath. I therefore unhesitatingly conclude, says Calvin, that vengeance was declared against Moses for his negligence, which was connected with still heavier sins. For he had not omitted his son's circumcision from forgetfulness, or ignorance, or carelessness only, but because he was aware that it was disagreeable either to his wife or to his father-in-law. Therefore, lest his wife should quarrel with him or his father-in-law trouble him, Moses preferred to gratify them rather than to give occasion for division or enmity or disturbance. In the meantime, however, for the sake of the favor of men, he neglected to obey God. This false dealing was not a small offense, since nothing is more intolerable than to defraud God of his due obedience in order to please humans. There was a mixture, too, in Moses of distrust and ingratitude in it also, for if the favor of God had its proper weight in the eyes of Moses, he would not have been stopped by the fear of man from this holy duty. I agree with John Calvin here, not that that makes much of a difference. Uh, The Issue appears to be that Moses, though aware of God's command to circumcise, refused to circumcise his son in order to appease his wife and maybe his father-in-law too. That would explain Zipporah's cryptic bridegroom of blood to me comment. Very likely, it would seem, she is expressing distress and maybe even disgust at the necessity of performing such an operation on her infant son. 
Now, for a deeper, I think, more complete explanation of the practice of circumcision, I'll refer you all the way back to episode 16 of this podcast, in which we spend a really good bit of time exploring the topic and the fact that New Testament Christians are not required to be circumcised. All you got to do is go to our website to find that, BibleReadingPodcast.com, or go on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and go find episode number 16. But as a brief summary reminder, God commanded Abraham to institute circumcision for all males born to his descendants as a way to of setting them apart from all of the other peoples of the land. Perhaps the best reasoning for circumcision I've ever heard was quoted in depth on episode 16 of the show, but basically amounts to this. Abraham's son Isaac was born in a miraculous way to a mom and dad who were way beyond the age of childbearing. Isaac should not have been born, and the dynamic of that, that means the entire nation of Israel descended from Isaac through Abraham, was the miraculous doing of God. It didn't happen in a natural way, but a supernatural way. And so every time a Hebrew male would begin to be intimate with his wife on the verge of producing a child, they would both be reminded by the sight and the sign of circumcision that they were a people uniquely supernaturally created by God. Now, of course, this miraculous birth of Isaac also presaged and previewed the birth of the soon-coming Messiah, Jesus, born to a virgin to save his people in the entire world from their sins. In the Old Covenant, circumcision was supremely important as a sign and a reminder of God's goodness. That Moses would compromise on this most important commandment demonstrated that he would likely compromise on other important commandments and issues too. And I speculate that God could not allow one of his major leaders in all of human history to lead his people into compromise. Thus did God come near to force Moses to repent or to take his life if he stubbornly maintained his refusal to obey God. Now, maybe we think this is a bit over the top on God's part, but it's worth remembering a dynamic that we learn about in the New Testament. God's leaders and God's teachers will be judged more severely. Why? Because when they compromise in sin, they lead more people away than just themselves. And I don't believe God could have a guy in Moses that it was so easy for him to compromise. This was a lesson for him. Maybe a painful lesson, maybe a scary lesson, but we know God is sovereign and we know God knows the future and we know that God knew Moses would repent, but from Moses' perspective, he came face to face with death. And it reminds us of James 3, chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Not many should be teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. 
as John Calvin rightly pointed out, Moses should have been more full of the fear of God than the fear of what his wife or father-in-law might say to him. God is a consuming fire. He is awesome, mighty, powerful. And Moses was attempting to be a people pleaser and not a God pleaser. A dangerous road to go down, literally in this case, for a man of God. And you know what? Pastors, I'm a pastor, we need to hear this. Not that we lead people in a sort of uh, dictatorial way, our way or the highway or anything like that. But the great temptation among spiritual leaders is that we make choices based on the fear of humans and what they might say about us rather than the fear of God. And this passage challenges all of us, moms, dads, teachers, leaders, etc., that of much greater weight in our minds should be the commands of God and the fear of God than what other people are going to say about us. Now, we might be tempted to read passages like this and think, as many do, that, you know, God was more harsh in the Old Testament and more chill and merciful in the New Testament. But honestly, that view is not at all accurate. God is always holy and a consuming fire. Old Testament, New Testament. He is also always merciful. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, killed, dropped dead for their sin of lying to God's apostles. Consider the danger that Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians 11, a topic we're actually going to cover in three days, where he suggests that it's possible for people to die if they do not properly honor God in the way they partake of the Lord's Supper. Did you know the Lord's Supper could be dangerous in church? Well, according to the Bible, it is. Finally, consider Jesus' stark and important warning about the fear of God in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. He's not talking about Satan there. He's talking about God. Satan can't destroy people in hell because Satan doesn't rule hell. He's going to be tossed into hell. It is not at all hyperbole when Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. May we, may I, take his commands with the utmost sobriety and seriousness. And now, before we get back to the Bible reading, let me close with an encouraging word from our friend Charles Spurgeon. And he says, again, as Jesus on the cross did not utter a word against his adversaries, so he did not say a word against any one of us. You remember how Zipporah said to Moses, surely a bloody husband are you to me, as she saw her child bleeding. And surely, in a similar way, Jesus might have said to his church, You are a costly spouse to me to bring me all this shame and bloodshedding. But Jesus gives liberally. He opens the very fountain of his heart, and he does not scold us. He had counted on paying the ultimate price and endured the cross, despising the shame. This was compassion like a God that when the Savior knew the price of pardon was his blood, his pity never withdrew. Amen and praise God for that. 
Job chapter 21, verse 1. Then Job answered, Pay close attention to my words. Let this be the consolation you offer. Bear with me while I speak. Then after I have spoken, you may continue mocking. As for me, is my complaint against a human being? Then why shouldn't I be impatient? Look at me and shudder. Put your hand over your mouth. When I think about it, I'm terrified, and my body trembles in horror. Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? Their children are established while they're still alive, and their descendants before their eyes. Their homes are secure and free of fear. No rod from God strikes them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They let their little ones run around like lambs. Their children skip about, singing the tambourine and lyre and rejoicing at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and they go down to Sheol in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him, and what will we gain by pleading with Him? But their prosperity is not of their own doing. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Does disaster come on them? Does he apportion destruction in his anger? Are they like straw before the wind, like a chaff, a storm blows away? God reserves a person's punishment for his children. Let God repay the person himself so that he may know it. Let his own eyes see his demise. Let him drink from the Almighty's wrath. For what does he care about his family once he's dead, when the number of his months has run out? Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges the exalted ones? One person dies in excellent health, completely secure and at ease. His body is well fed and his bones are full of marrow. Yet another person dies with a bitter soul, having never tasted prosperity. But they both lie in the dust, and worms cover them. I know your thoughts very well, the schemes by which you would wrong me. For you say, Where now is the nobleman's house, and where are the tents the wicked lived in? Have you never consulted those who travel the roads? roads? Don't you accept their reports? Indeed, the evil person is spared from the day of disaster, rescued from the day of wrath. Who could denounce his behavior to his face? Who could repay him for what he has done? He is carried to the grave, and someone keeps watch over his tomb. The dirt on his grave is sweet to him. Everyone follows behind him, and those who go before him are without number. So how can you offer me such futile comfort? Your answers are deceptive. Luke chapter 7 verse 1. When he had concluded, concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with him, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. 
I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him, and just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped, and, it, and he said, Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and living in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the tax pla- all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating or bread or drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. And one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner 
found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Huh, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed five hundred denarii and the other fifty. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, and she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrifice to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. And, brothers and sisters, let us keep that policy as well. Let us not do things that cause our brother or sister to fall. Rather, let us live our lives in a way that will edify and build up and encourage. God bless you and Godspeed.